G'day team, uh, James here. I just thought I'd hop on to say what's up and that I just gave a CLE a little earlier today. Um, <laughs> I get a phone call in the middle of it, so, <laughs> so it's a little bit embarrassing. So forgive the, um, the recording jumping out and jumping back. Um, hope this big, long listen brings you some value. Hope you're well. And just while I'm here, I'd love to ask a favour if that's okay. Could I ask you, whatever platform you are friends with, if you could search out the hashtag coffee and a case note and swing a like or a follow that way. And could I also ask, um, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or something like that that allows you to leave a review, I'd be mega, mega grateful if you could hit me with, look, five stars, of course. <laughs> um, but, you know, whatever you think is appropriate, um, that would be really great. Um, sorry, uh, let's get to that. Let's get to that spicy content. Hope you're well. Talk soon. Bye. And we're to James Tubby. Thanks so much, Jordan. Um, and I should just say at the outset, there's a particular thanks to Jordan uh, and everyone at TVED for having to be patient with me as I, uh, I messed up the tech. So uh, if I seem a bit rushed, uh, it's 100% my fault. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time. Um, we're going to talk about partnership disputes uh, today. I've called the talk Howdy uh, because I couldn't really come up with a, with a better or more brief uh, a way to sort of highlight the fact about what we're talking about. But um, what we're going to work through, I'll come to in just a moment. But I just wanted to make a few introductory comments just to ground our discussion, if that's all right. So a partnership is itself a group of individuals, a group of legal entities carrying on business together with a view to profit. And um, as some of the litigators among us might ask, what could possibly go wrong with an arrangement like that? Now, the law of partnership is not without complexity or risk. And what I say is that, well, sometimes as partners ourselves, but certainly as advisors to partners, an understanding of the law of partnership and what can happen when the rubber hits the road is vital. It's all we're going to dive into today. And what I say is that an understanding of the law of partnership ought to be informed by both sides of the ledger. You ought to have an understanding of how a partnership ought to operate when things are going right, uh, and then you ought to have an understanding of how partnership law works when things are not going quite so right as the partners might have helped. Now, just one last preliminary note. I'm a litigator, uh, and this paper is uh, drafted from the perspective of a litigator. And what we're going to come to at the end of this discussion is a discussion about what ought to go into a partnership agreement. Those suggestions are respectful suggestions to my commercial colleagues. I'm not holding myself out as a draftsperson of any kind, um, merely saying that as a litigator, uh, having looked at a significant number of these cases, a few of which we're going to discuss today, there are a few uh, matters that sing out uh, for attention, and I'll draw those to you discussion, as I say, we'll kick off with a discussion about the law where we'll ground ourselves. Then we're going to spend a significant amount of time looking at litigated examples. So having grounded ourselves in the theory, we'll then take some time to really dive into the nuts and bolts of what happens when the rubber hits the road. And we'll close out our chat um, having a look at some practical examples, some sort of nuts and bolts sort of stuff that hopefully will be of value to you. So uh, section one, we're going to spend a bit of time on and when we're talking about the law of partnership, I've divided it up into three different sections that I say are sort of useful guiding sections for you uh, to understand the law of partnership broadly. Um, and they are, <laughs> I haven't framed them as questions on that slide, but I'll frame them as questions now. Essentially, uh, we ask ourselves, uh, does a partnership exist? 
we ask ourselves, what are the features of that existing partnership? And uh, we ask ourselves, well, okay, what happens at the end of the partnership? What happens when the partnership is dissolved? And what I'm going to do now is to dive into that. Now, when we're talking about the law of partnership, speaking broadly, what a partnership is, is a description of the legal relationship between certain parties, certain individuals, carrying on business together with a view to profit, as we said before, and who distribute income and losses between themselves. Now, there are a number of elements there. Firstly, the profit element. So charities and NFPs fly out the window and cannot be a partnership. Secondly, um, it is a relationship between legal entities, which means a trust in and of itself, despite the um, potential taxation appeals or the uh, shonky suggestions people might make from time to time. Uh, cannot itself be a partner, though obviously a trustee or a beneficiary can. Uh, and a, a partnership is a relationship that must be distinguished from a relationship like a trust, even though fiduciary duties do arise, and it must be distinguished from an entity like a corporation. It is a different thing. There are oh, mild similarities between them, but it, really it is important that you do not confuse yourself and get any of those mixed up. So as I said before, when we're talking about the law of partnership, we're going to break it into these three categories that you can see in front of you. Does a partnership exist? The existence of a partnership is where we'll dive into first. And the first place we turn, if we're in New South Wales or in other jurisdictions for the corollary, corollary legislation, is we turn to section two. And uh, interestingly, section two uh, says what a partnership is not. <laughs> and so what we start to learn is that a written agreement is not necessary. We learn that co-ownership of property is not itself evidence that a partnership exists, regardless of whether the profits of that co-ownership are shared or not. And we learn that receipt of a business's profits is prima facie evidence of partnership, because do you remember, as we learned before, uh, profit sharing and loss sharing is a fundamental element of partnership law. Um, but there are exceptions to the prima facie uh, position that sharing uh, profits and sharing losses proves a partnership, uh, such as uh, remuneration of an employee based on profits or a director, uh, a family member of a deceased partner uh, receiving a share of the profits as part of the distribution uh, from the estate, payment on account of goodwill, this sort of stuff. There are a lot of exceptions. And uh, we might also ask in relation to the existence of a partnership, well, how is the existence of a partnership to be determined? And the answer to that is that it's a question of fact and it's to be determined from the substance of a relationship itself. A mere assertion that a party is a partner will not make them so. And then a person may say, the opposite of that, may say they are a partner when in fact they are not so. Where we've got a written agreement, uh, the normal uh, principles of contractual construction apply in relation to are these parties partners or not, and in relation to what are the terms of this partnership. And so what do we have there? Things are a tiny bit fuzzy. Uh, we learn that uh, the question of whether uh, an entity is in partnership or whether entities are in partnership uh, is a question of fact. 
and that a written partnership agreement is not necessary and that if we're trying to figure out whether an agreement is indeed a partnership, we want to apply those contractual construction uh, standards to them. So features of partnership, if we're talking about whether one exists or not, fine, but let's talk about the actual content of a partnership. What do they do? Uh, well, they do uh, three things that we sort of split off into five for the purposes of this paper, if anyone has a copy of the paper with them. Um, the key features are mutual agency. So the act of one partner binds the others. If you and I are in partnership and I go do a thing, for example, borrow some money, uh, my act in taking out that loan binds you. What partners also do is three different things that we sort of roll into one is that partners participate in profits. So between themselves, they share profits. Uh, between themselves, they share losses. So the other side of that. And partners have common capital. So the partnership capital is indeed property of the partnership. It is common between each of the partners. So there are those three sort of financial links, if we put it that the, if we put it that way, financial features of partnership. We've got the sharing of profits, we've got the sharing of losses, and we've got capital in common. And the final feature of partnership uh, for this sort of introductory comment about it is that it's unassignable. Uh, so one's rights and obligations as a partner are not capable of assignment. So we've got mutual agency, your act binds mine. We've got a non-assignment, I can't uh, assign away my rights as partner. And we've got those financial elements of sharing profits and losses and having common capital. Now, when will the act of one partner bind the other or when won't it perhaps might be a question your clients might put to you. And the answer to that uh, is that if the partner doing the act has no authority to bind the partnership and the party with whom that partner is entering into a transaction is aware of that absence of authority. And that authority question is one I say that is not addressed uh, clearly enough in some partnership agreements. And when we come to drafting suggestions at the end of this discussion, I'll make a couple of uh, nudges <laughs> your way about what might go into a partnership agreement. Now, partners are jointly liable for the debts of the firm, of the partnership incurred while they are a partner. And after the death of that individual partner, the partner's estate becomes severally liable for the debts and obligations following dissolution. So partnerships are dissolved on death and on the death of that partner, the estate's uh, liabilities are severally, which is to say in proportion uh, to the number of partners, they are severally liable for the debts of the partnership. And uh, an interesting uh, position that we find is that without evidence of a contrary intention, a property that is purchased with partnership money is deemed to be property of the firm, property of the partnership. And uh, a number of us, uh, perhaps uh, in this session, will have had experience with uh, property being bought with partnership money and then later becoming the subject of a dispute. Oh, and then a nice um, little, uh, what's been described to me as a factoid, nice little factoid is that uh, with a few exceptions, the size of a partnership is limited to 20 partners.
Okay, so when's a partnership dissolved? Well, it's dissolved at the expiry of a fixed term, if there's some fixed term for the partnership set in the agreement. Uh, if the partnership is entered into for a single venture, then the partnership is dissolved at the termination of that venture. Or otherwise, it is dissolved by one partner giving notice of their intention to dissolve the partnership. Every partnership is dissolved on the death of a partner unless there's an agreement made to the contrary. So again, we'll speak drafting later, but I want to plant that seed with you that a properly drafted partnership agreement needs to deal with what happens when one of us dies. And also in relation to corporate partners, death does not have the same um, meaning, obviously, but that needs to be dealt with as well. Now, the court can also dissolve a partnership. Uh, the court can dissolve a partnership if a partner is declared of unsound mind and incapable of managing their affairs. The court can dissolve a partnership if the partner becomes permanently incapable of performing her, its, his or their, or no, not their, um, obligations under the partnership agreement. If the partner engages in conduct calculated to prejudicially affect the firm's business. Now, there's a couple of elements there. The firm's business, remember the whole thing about the firm is that it is designed to make a profit. So uh, it's not the firm's affairs or anything like that. It's the firm's business. And it's calculated, which means that it is a conscious, considered, strategic, deliberate move made by the partner and that it must prejudicially affect that business. Uh, the court can dissolve a partnership if there's been persistent or willful breach of the partnership agreement uh, and uh, otherwise conduct rendering it not practicable for the other partners to remain in partnership. And as well, the just and equitable basis, just to round it out. So um, what I'd like you to take from all of that is that a partner can die, a partner can give notice, partner can go mad, <laughs> um, uh, a partner can be in a partnership where the business can only be carried on at a loss, which I ought to have mentioned earlier, uh, can engage in prejudicial conduct. Any of this stuff can lead to the dissolution of a partnership. And what I hope you will take from that quick little review is that um, there are a significant number of bases either for partnerships to be dissolved immediately and as a result of the event and in the alternative there are a number of bases that the bases that the court will dissolve the partnership and what that means is that in the context of partnership disputes it's not actually very often that dissolution itself sorry dissolution <laughs> there may actually be a fair bit of dissolution disillusionment perhaps between the partners but dissolution um, does not actually end up rearing its head quite so much in the disputes. The sort of issues we end up dealing with are what might be thought of as more administrative and sometimes accounting matters. So often the question will be about does a partnership exist at all? In the alternative, the questions might be how will the money of the partnership or the liabilities, the losses of the partnership be apportioned between the partners. So that was the first portion of our talk. I hope it gave you a reasonable, workable grounding on the law of partnership. 
And as I'm working through this, I think um, we're well placed for an early mark. So if that's good news, good. And if it's uh, bad news, then I'm so sorry. Um, but we are doing well. We're getting through this content well. So let me turn now to the second portion of our discussion and talk about some uh, cases, some litigation involving partnerships. And what I hope you get from this discussion is you get a bit of an insight into uh, what happens when the rubber hits the road. You know, how do these disputes look uh, in the flesh? So the first one we're going to turn to is Chickabo and Zvere, Z-P-H-E-R-E, 2019, uh, Supreme Court of Victoria, uh, 73. Uh, now, what I say is that this decision is pretty useful for anyone looking to understand um, the court's approach to the question about does a partnership exist? It's an interesting one, and I hope you agree. So we've got various companies, and they enter into a partnership deed. Each of these companies is a trustee of a trust and the uh, beneficiary of that trust and one of the directors of each of the companies are natural persons who are accountants, right? So the trustee companies are the partners and sort of the principles or the, the controlling minds or whatever we want to call it, we might use the word principle, the principles of the company and some, one of the leading beneficiaries of each of the trusts that the company is a trustee of are natural persons, they're people, real people, and they're accountants, right? And this partnership of companies operates an accounting firm. And this accounting firm holds out each of its principles, each of its natural persons, as partners of that firm. I've drawn that, sorry. Let me just confirm that. They were held out. Sorry, no, I reiterate that. They were each held out as partners. So we've got James PTY Limited and Computer PTY Limited. Uh, enter into a partnership deed and James PTY Limited and Computer PTY Limited operate an accounting firm whereby James, the natural person, and Computer, the natural person, uh, each venture out into the marketplace and are held out as partners in an accounting firm. And they go off and do accounting business. Now, the business of that firm was to uh, provide accountancy, tax, wealth management sort of advice was to hold out each of these natural persons, hold out James and hold out Computer uh, as partners of the firm, um, to cause those principals, each of those natural persons, to be appointed as directors of the firm's natural, sorry, as uh, the firm's corporate clients, I should say. So part of the strategy was the firm, the partnership, saying what we want to do is we want to get our principals, our natural people, onto the board of our clients and that's going to be part of our strategy for making money as an accounting firm. What they also wanted to do is to offer the partners, which is to say the companies, James PTY Limited and Computer PTY Limited, as well as the principals, so James, myself, and Computer itself, opportunities to invest with the firm's clients. This was all part of the strategy. Now, um, what the partnership deed that the corporations were parties to, that the corporate partners were parties to required, um, was that formal approval of the partnership was needed in order for any investment 
to be okay with the partnership in order for it to not be a breach of the partnership deed. Now, one of the defendants, who was a natural person, was appointed to the board of one of the firm's significant clients. Right, so we've got this principal, and he gets appointed to a board of one of the firm's clients, which you might remember is one of the goals of the, of the firm. That's the business they want to be in. They want their principals to get appointed to their clients' boards. So congratulations to them. And part of the reason they want to do that is that they issue invoices for that principal's board work. And that's fine. But now uh, the principal is offered an opportunity to buy shares in the company he's on the board of. And what he does is firstly not tell the partnership about it and secondly take up that opportunity to make an investment. And uh, he causes an entity related to him to enjoy a benefit in the range of, in excess of, I should say, $11 million. Shortly after this, in his capacity as director of another of the firm's client, he causes another entity related to him to enjoy a gratuitous gift of a little over $4.8 million. Now, neither the principal, which is to say the natural person, or the partner, which is to say the corporation, accounted to the partnership for those monies. They just went straight away wherever that particular principal wanted. So what happens? The partners, remember each of them are the companies, the companies sue the other partner, which is to say the misbehaving principal's company. They sue that company, but they also sue the principal himself. They sue the natural person. And so the question arises, is the natural person a partner of these companies? And so they have a look at it. They say, well, obviously the company's a partner. The company's name's in the partnership deed, signed in the name of the company, um, all this sort of partnership stuff. But what they note is that, well, the natural person, the real guy, his name is on the partnership deed as a principal and his signature is on the partnership deed because he signed as the company but it doesn't seem to be anticipated on the face of the deed that the natural person, the real guy, is going to be a partner. But the court doesn't just stay at the uh, surface level with this analysis. Um, the court looks closely at the deed and the number of scenarios it covers. And what it finds is it covers a number of scenarios that could only possibly apply to the principles, could only possibly apply to natural persons. So it deals with things like bankruptcy, companies can't go bankrupt, death, companies can't die, illness, age, uh, these sort of natural person things. And what the court does is say, well, the deed would lack commercial utility if the principals, the natural persons themselves, were not themselves partners. And so on the correct construction, each of the companies, James PTY Limited and Computer PTY Limited, uh, owed duties to the partnership as partners. But because of the terms of the partnership deed, including things like age and illness and this sort of stuff, uh, the natural persons too, the real people, were partners. And what that meant for our na misbehaving natural person, if we can put it in that way, was that his conduct in failing to account 
for his $11 million investment and his $4.8 million gift were a breach of his fiduciary obligations as partner. And so he was obliged to go and account for those monies to the partnership because they were received in breach of his obligations as partner. Hope that example assisted you. That was our first example there, Chickabo and Zvir. So I might turn now to Murray and Ferros, F-E-R-O-S, uh, Supreme Court of New South Wales, 2019 at 2.60. Um, we've got a group, and it's a group that operates six pharmacy businesses. Now, three of the pharmacy businesses are operated by three pharmacists who are in partnership. One of these six businesses is operated by a partnership between those three pharmacists and one other person. And then the other two pharmacies are operated by companies who are controlled by our original three pharmacists. A little bit of complexity there, but it's um, window dressing a little bit. It's not desperately relevant, but it's there by way of background. These various businesses are legally distinct, but they're operated by way of a management board that takes responsibility for the whole group. So there's a sort of oversight, uh, a sort of a governance arm that makes decisions that uh, cause each of the six members of the group to do stuff uh, as, as they move through the marketplace. Now, disputes start to arise as the general manager uh, of the group uh, and uh, 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 about his conduct and then subsequently about the way he was removed. And in any case, there are long-standing disputes about the management of the group's business where the owners eventually felt they were unable to work together and despite there being genuine negotiations trying to find a path through all this, uh, including consideration of a buyout, there is no path found. And in short, uh, the parties are left to their dispute. Now, the other element is that the threat of a financier who had become aware of all the disputes between the partners uh, was threatening to call in the loans made to the various uh, entities in the group. That was an imminent threat and it put the uh, ongoing value of the businesses at risk. And what the court said was in the circumstances, it was just an equitable that the partnerships be wound up, remembering that partnerships can be dissolved on the just and equitable basis. And it was also, for the same reasons, just and equitable that the corporate uh, members of the group be wound up. And so we have a nice example of how easy it is, and I say that in a slightly light-hearted way, but uh, with, with a ring of truth to it, that, that there can be some ease uh, to the way that partnerships are dissolved. But the court then uh, had to turn to, right, who are we going to appoint? Um, and had to consider something that many of you will have had experience with, um, the appointment of insolvency practitioners. It had to turn its mind to say, okay, well, we're going to have uh, an administrator take charge in relation to the dissolution of the partnerships. We're going to have a liquidator come and take charge in relation to the winding up of the companies. Who is it going to be? And the court makes a finely balanced decision here. And the essence of that finely balanced decision is that the court uh, makes a call for the insolvency practitioners, each of whom, or sorry, each, each uh, team uh, would 
uh, were equally expert and planned to charge a very, very similar rate. The court finds gently in favour of the insolvency team with the experience uh, winding up and dissolving pharmacies. So, so it seems to be an important one for us to remember if we want to get our favoured insolvency practitioners appointed, that we make sure their CVs up to date and they are relevant to the sort of businesses we want to wind up. Now, extensive consideration was giving, given to legal costs because the question is, well, okay, um, who pays the legal costs in this litigation, which was necessary, but it wasn't brutally adversarial, as you might be able to tell from the way I'm reporting it, or you might not. <laughs> um, there was not a hot, bitter dispute between the parties. It was more a case that, that it was acknowledged that look, we're not getting along, um, we need to wind this stuff up, and the court more or less said, yeah, that's right. Now, usually, the costs that are consequent on or necessary for the dissolution of a partnership should be paid from the partnership assets unless there's a good reason for some other order. And as a matter of substance, the proceedings were resolved by agreement here. Um, so everyone agreed it was just inequitable that we turn to the dissolution and to the wind-ups. The plaintiffs um, didn't submit that the dissolution was the fault of the defendants. Um, they didn't put on evidence going into the rights and wrongs and the he said, she said and the monstrous affidavits that you'll all be familiar with. Um, they merely just put on evidence setting out that the owners could no longer work together and it was just inequitable um, that the wind-up ought to occur, which the court eventually accepted. What the court said was that it was always going to be necessary for there to be evidence of that sort put on meaning that it was a necessary cost for the dissolution of the partnership, meaning that those costs ought to be visited upon the corpus of the partnership paid from partnership assets, and meaning that the plaintiffs got their legal costs while the defendants were left to pay their own, such as they were. And I should say, just for completeness, that the same cost position was reached in relation to the liquidation of the companies. Okay. Uh, now let's turn to a question about who bears the costs of, uh, is it the partnership or the parties? So we're going to ask uh, a similar question uh, and get a look and echo of that outcome above. So we've got some parties who are engaged in a single venture partnership which is essentially about buying and developing a piece of commercial real estate. The parties fall into disagreement and the property that was the subject of the partnership gets sold. Single venture partnerships dissolved and there's litigation and disputes about who's paying the cost of what in relation to that dissolution. Court appoints a referee and uh, the referee has referred to her or him, I can't remember, um, uh, all these various disputes. Partner X should pay for Y. Partner Y should pay for Z, and all, all this, all this sort of stuff, all this back and forth. A huge number of, um, uh, I was going to say arithmetical. That's not quite right. A huge number of financial decisions to be made about which partner, or which partner's share, I should say, ought to bear the weight of various costs. Now the referee forms a view. Uh, and in essence, 
the referee delivers this big report and a significant number of the defendant's claims are accepted. And so then an argument arises as to whether the cost of the referee should be borne by the plaintiffs alone, because the plaintiffs kicked off the proceedings, or whether it was a cost of the partnership. Now, remember what we learned earlier is that the costs for the dissolution of a partnership, for the winding of it up, should be paid from the partnership assets absent good reason for some other order. The defendant said, in essence, the proceedings were commenced by the plaintiffs to dispute all these claims. And look, the defendants had got up on most of those claims. And so the unsuccessful application, the costs of it, ought to be visited upon those plaintiffs. Now, the court rejected this position. And in so doing, what the court said was, the costs ought to be borne from the partnership assets. These, um, what seemed like hundreds and hundreds of rats and mice, uh, little issues, little financial matters that were referred on to the referee, actually went to the heart of what the partnership agreement was about, or the, the heart of what the obligations of each of the parties were. And so, uh, as such, they were costs uh, consequent or directly related to the dissolution of the partnership, meaning that those costs ought to be visited upon the partnership corpus, uh, uh, the partnership itself, rather than one partner or another. Okay, um, there's a little, there's a, that's right, there's a funny little footnote here where there was a delay in payment of the referee. Um, and the referee had to do a lot of work in this matter and so it would have charged a lot of fees. And that delay arose due to the plaintiffs and the plaintiffs only really kicking up a stink about how much uh, the referee was charging or proposed to charge in relation to uh, her or his uh, referral work. And interest arose. And that interest arose exclusively because of the attitude of the plaintiffs. And what the court found was that the, uh, the costs of the referee ought to be visited upon the partnership corpus for similar reasons to what I said before, uh, which is that the, the nature of that referred dispute, the nature of each of those little arguments about a transaction actually really went to the heart of the question of what is this partnership agreement all about. But the interest that arose on the referee's costs arose because of the plaintiffs plaintiffs being a stick in the mud and are being slow to pay the referee. And so the interest was visited upon the plaintiffs there. And so uh, costs, apart from that interest cost, was borne uh, along and consistent with the usual position in relation to legal costs uh, from the dissolution of a partnership, where those legal costs are um, directly attributable um, uh, and perhaps consequential upon or necessary for the winding up, I withdraw winding up, I apologise, the dissolving of a partnership. Okay, let's turn to our final decision. Um, this one is about the existence of a partnership. Uh, it's a decision called Jafari and 23 Developments. It's 2019, a Victorian Court of Appeal decision 201. So, um, we have got uh, a decision with a reasonably complex set of facts and a reasonably compact, uh, a reasonably complex uh, number of different claims going on. So the law's a little complex as well, 
but let's just stay on the partnership element and uh, not get ourselves too lost, too stuck in the weeds. So first instance, um, we've got a finding made by the Supreme Court that there is no partnership agreement. And what that meant, importantly, for our appellant, who wanted to appeal that, is that there was no breach of the partnership and so no need to account to uh, him, I believe it was, in relation to that breach. So our appellant says, well, I'm going to appeal, I'm going to appeal that outcome because I want to prove that there was a partnership. Let's get a bit more background. So in about 2003, uh, the appellant, and when I say appellant, I'm referring to a number of parties that are related to the appellant, so I'll speak loosely, I'll use that term loosely if that's okay. Um, in about 2003, the appellant purchases a property uh, for the purpose of developing it. There are various little fat fires and flare-ups and difficulties that um, bounce along <laughs> um, in relation to the uh, ownership of that property. And then essentially uh, things get tight and finance becomes an issue. Now, um, over these years, the appellant had always contemplated um, developing the property and that was what was in his mind. And then in 2009, an agreement is struck where between the appellant and the respondent, whereby um, the appellant agreed to sell the properties to the respondent, um, but remain engaged in the process of developing them. So hopefully, nonetheless, uh, take some of the outcome. Uh, importantly, uh, what the appellant said is, hey, that agreement included a term requiring that the profits of any such development be shared. And you recall from our discussion earlier that the sharing of profits is an important element of proving a partnership exists. Now, um, interestingly, oh, interestingly, I suppose, on one view, um, the arrangement didn't proceed as planned because the appellant... Uh, wasn't able to convey clear title to the property uh, because due to a failure to being able to pay his debts, uh, the property was actually sold by the mortgagee in possession. Who did the mortgagee in possession sell to? Uh, the mortgagee in possession sold to the respondent. And indeed, um, the mortgagee in possession sold to the respondent with the appellant's support. Now, what the appellant did was support the respondent's purchase of the property, as I said, uh, and then attempt to sort of remain involved with the development pardon, of the property. And um, what it said was, hey, it's partnership property, we're partners. Uh, and um, that uh, the breach, which will be alleged, which we'll come to, was a loss of opportunity claim on the part of the appellant valued at about $6 million. So what the uh, first instance judge found uh, was that the 2009 agreement that the appellant said was a partnership agreement was unenforceable because the appellant was unable to provide clear title to the land that he'd promised to provide, um, you know, meaning that agreement had been terminated or abandoned. The appellant went on to argue that the uh, later agreement the general tenor of it and the profit share term meant it was a partnership agreement, meaning that uh, the respondent's subsequent conduct was a breach of that partnership agreement 
and that breach ought to sound in loss of opportunity damages to about $6 million. Now, what the Court of Appeal said was that, yes, a share of a business's profits is a prima facie indication of a partnership, but it is not determinative of itself. Um, Forgive me. The court went on to say that uh, wanted to uphold the first instance judge's decision and confirm that the parties were not in partnership. There are a number of reasons for the court confirming this. Um, there was no express term that the respondent take ownership of the properties on behalf of the partnership. Um, the original agreement, the 2009 agreement, whereby the appellant promised to convey the land but actually failed to be able to do so, didn't contemplate a subsequent partnership agreement. There was no term dealing with the liability of one partner for losses or, or um, undertakings entered into by another partner, which you'll remember is a fundamental feature of partnership. Um, language such as in the project or on behalf of the project is not going to be determinative of whether a partnership exists. And um, perhaps fatally, there were earlier versions of the document, the agreement, in which terms like partners and partnership were used Crucially, those earlier versions were earlier versions only. And in the final version of the agreement, any references to partners or partnership were removed. And so what I hope you agree is that a discussion in some depth of those cases puts a bit of meat on the bones of the law of partnership that we spoke about earlier because we're now going to move into the third phase of today's discussion, um, which is to make some practical suggestions to you um, about how you might deal with uh, partnership issues when they confront you in practice, when you find yourself uh, advising partners or advising people who might be partners. Right. If a partnership dispute arises, or if you might have the whiff of a partnership dispute in the air... I say there are a number of steps you can go through. And again, these are set out in the paper and I hope they assist you. Um, firstly, we can consider whether the parties are indeed partners. We can just have that thought. Are, are they actually partners? And you've got to take a close look at that. You want to turn to the partnership agreement, if any, and figure out what the contractual obligations between these parties are. If they are partners, you want to layer on top of whatever the contract says those additional partnership obligations of the kind we referred to earlier. If there's no partnership agreement, but you form a view that the parties are partners, then you want to go ahead and draft one. And if there can be no agreement reached about the next steps or whether a partnership ought to be entered into, then uh, if there is a question about whether a partnership should be entered into and that's not clear, then perhaps that'll just mean there's no business to be done here or it'll be some other form of agreement, maybe a mere licence or something like that. Uh, and if there is a feeling the parties cannot get along, then perhaps it'll be time for you to think if the parties are partners uh, that you might end up thinking about dissolution of the partnership. Final option being to litigate. I should say the final and most exciting option. <laughs> now, I think I promised an early mark, and we're looking fairly good because the final um, element um, I wanted to discuss with you is just to run through some features of a partnership agreement 
And I'll remind you of what I said at the outset of this talk, which is that um, I am not holding myself out as a commercial drafts person. I, I, I dabble. But um, these are suggestions made very much in the vein of a litigator um, who's seen an example or two, and, and hopefully these can assist you. So um, just some terms for you to think about, including in your partnership agreement um, next time uh, there's one crossing your desk. So, I mean, we want to think about a fundamental one, how decisions are going to be made. In the case of a deadlock, how are the affairs of the partnership going to proceed? Um, there's capital that's going to be contributed. We want to look at who's contributing the capital and when. Uh, and this is particularly important when one part, partner or partners are the money or the bank and one partner or partners are the sweat equity that is coming in to work hard. And it's, uh, it's important that you get on top of these money issues. Another money issue to get on top of is how do you get money out? So we want to have a clause dealing with drawings. We want to have a clause dealing with repayment of a partner's loans. We want to have a clause dealing with salaries. How are we going to pay our partners? In the case of incapacity, death, disability, bankruptcy, we want to deal with that. What are the steps we're going to take? We want to deal with retirement of partners and dissolution. We want to have a dispute resolution clause. If the partnership is a single venture partnership, and <laughs> as a general rule, a single venture partnership is not something to be uh, ventured into lightly, um, a JV agreement ought to, ought to cover everything that needs to be covered, but uh, there can be times when, when that's not appropriate. But. Uh, if you're doing a single venture partnership, you want to make sure that venture is defined. You want to deal with the extent to which partners have the authority to buy in the partnership. Uh, and you want to find out how that uh, authority can be granted and how it can be withdrawn. You want to have a buy-sell pr provision. You want to be able to get people in and get rid of them. Uh, you want to describe the purpose of the partnership. Set out something like a business plan, something that sets out what we're out here to do. The partners are natural persons. You might want to do touchy-feely stuff, have a think about sabbaticals, have a think about taking leave, have a think about retirement, this sort of stuff. Uh, how do you remove a non-performing partner? That's a good one because remember that um, a partner who fails to perform, depending on the nature of that failed performance, may uh, in fact form a basis for the court to dissolve the partnership. Potentially, you want a warranty or an acknowledgement about who is and who is not a partner. Uh, you want an indemnity um, between the respective partners for expenses and liabilities incurred in the course of the partnership. Governing jurisdiction, and you probably want to deal with accretion. How are you going to add new partners? So um, we are now at my promised early mark. Um, what I hope you found today was that uh, we dived in a little bit um, to work through the law, the real nuts and bolts of what partnership's all about. And you might remember we spoke about the existence of a partnership. Does it exist? We spoke about the features of the partnership. We spoke about mutual agency, sharing profits, sharing losses, and common capital. And then we also spoke about the non-assignability of partnership obligations. Then while we were talking about the law of partnership, we also spoke about dissolution of partnership. That was um, good fun. <laughs> uh, then while we were talking about uh, practical examples, we talked about Chickabo, which is that one where those companies were in partnership running an accounting firm. 
Murray and Ferros and Slim and others, Slim and Cabra, uh, we dealt with arguments about the costs of the dissolution of partnership and where they're visited upon. And then Jafari, that property, property investment one, we spoke about how a partnership didn't exist um, due to the fairly fact-specific uh, elements of the partnership agreement. And then finally, I made some suggestions for you that, that if you've got a client coming in or if you're trying to grapple with these issues, you want to think about whether the parties are indeed actually partners. If they are, what are their rights and obligations between each other? You want to have a think about whether a dissolution of the partnership indeed uh, assists your client. And then we talked about um, some possible features of a partnership agreement. Is the missing word down the bottom? <laughs> it's an easy word to miss. Um, we spoke about the partnership agreement at the end. So um, what I might do is I might thank you for your patience with me. Uh, it's been a bit of an adventure, uh, punctuated by nerves and uh, two stifled yawns that I'll have to blame uh, the new additions to our household for. My apologies. And I will look forward to hearing any questions you might have, if that's all right. And I also thank you for your time and for your attention.